0: In the way that is there described of him. I'll read this afternoon from Romans chapter 3 as we consider the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Read verses 21 through 31. I think that's on page 1118. In the Pew Bibles, we'll read beginning at verse 21. Paul has just spoken in verses 9 through 20 of how no one is righteous, and he says now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no, ju- no distinction It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You can turn to pages 881 and 882 in the back of your hymnals where we'll read uh, Lord's Days 23 and 24 together responsibly. Recall the last several uh, Lord's Days have been walking through The articles of the Apostles' Creed, the summary of the Christian faith, and now question 59 asks, but how does it help you now that you believe all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting? How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction of Righteousness and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Then I ask, why cannot our good works? be our righteousness before God or at least a part of our righteousness because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next. This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. The late um, J.I. Packer once said the doctrine of justification determines the whole character of Christianity as a religion of grace and faith. It makes clear what Christian morality is that it's works done out of gratitude to the Savior whose gift of righteousness makes obedience needless for acceptance. It is the ground of the gospel and the entryway to enjoyment of life with God. What he's saying is that you can't have the gospel without justification. I mean, you you can't really understand even how to enjoy God without justification because without it, you're, you're always thinking that you need to earn his favor. You end up the religion not of grace but of something else without justification. And therefore, you you misunderstand even the nature of Christian morality. This is why we often say that the doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. You get it wrong. You get everything wrong. So This afternoon, we we want to get it right by looking at Romans chapter 3, Considering four very simple questions. Uh, first of all, what is justification? Second of all, um, what is it based upon? Third, how is it received? And then fourth, uh, how does it relate to our good works? So, four uh, very simple questions that I hope will help us to be clear on this uh, most important thing. And first, what is justification? And question 60. Our catechism defines this by telling us that it is the good news that even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commands, in fact of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, God grants to me the perfect righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice three things about this, each of which we see here in Romans 3. First of all, that it is God who does the justifying. Notice in question 60, the one active in justification is not us, but God himself. God grants and credits to me. And all we must do, it says there at the end, is accept this gift with a believing heart. And So God is the one who gives the gift we receive. He's active, we are passive. And it's the same thing in Romans chapter three, from the very beginning, God is the one who is doing the acting. It's Him who is revealing his righteousness, which the law and the prophets bore witness to. In verse 24, he is the one who is justifying by grace as a gift. Verse 25, puts forth his son as an atoning or propitiating sacrifice. Verse 26, uh, he's the one who is said to be the justifier. And so God is the active agent in all of this. He's the one who makes the legal declaration as judge that sinners who are condemned by the law might be righteous by grace which is the the second part of justification. God is the one who does it as judge. He's the the subject. But the object is sinners who are condemned by the law. We see that in question 60, where it says that that my conscience and yours accuse us of never having kept any of God's commands, of, of grievously having sinned against all of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. And we see that same thing in Romans 3, verse 23, one of the the most well-known verses in the New Testament, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that verse there is, is simply the extension or implication of the point that Paul has just made in verses 9 through 18. That both Jews and Greeks are under sin, that no one is righteous, no not one, but all have together turned aside and become worthless. No one is righteous, no one does good, no not even one. But he says, Our throat is an open grave, we use our tongues to deceive the venom of asps. Think they're Genesis chapter three serpent-like activity is under our lips, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, our feet are swift to shed blood, in our paths are ruin and misery. He's just said all of this in the verses right before this, and the way of peace we have not known because there is no fear of God in our eyes. So notice how in that that section there, right before this, that section that's filled with these Old Testament quotations, Paul is is basically summarizing the second table of the law and, and how we sin against our neighbor. And then in verse 18, he summarizes the first, that there is no fear of God before our eyes. We sin in these ways because we don't fear God. We break the second table of the law Because of our failure to keep the first. and Therefore, having grievously sinned against not just one, but all of God's commands, we fall short of the glory of God. And and the implication is that we are deserving of death. That's the point that Paul has been making in Romans 1 through 3, that we are deserving of the wrath of God. That if God is the judge, then we deserve to be condemned in his courtroom. The Old Testament law condemns us. It's the point that he just made. Our, our conscience condemns us. We know this to be true of ourselves. Even our continuing inclination toward evil condemns us. It reveals that we deserve God's judgment and condemnation. And yet the glory of the gospel, the the glory of the gospel that is the theme of this whole book of Romans that Paul introduces in in, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this gospel that he longs to proclaim that is the power of God unto salvation, the glory of the gospel is that it is us in our sinful state who are objects of God's justifying grace. A justification is God's legal declaration as righteous of sinners, This is the third part of what justification is. God is the one who is active in it. Sinners are the objects of it. But the end is this, that we are declared righteous. That he grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner. as sinners, you think of, of that psalm we sang just before this, Psalm 15, as if we had obeyed all of those commands as perfectly as Christ, the man of Psalm 15, had, as if we'd been as perfectly obedient as Christ was for us. God the judge legally declares sinners as righteous. And we see this everywhere in our passage. See, the term um, the righteousness of God comes up, I think, at least four times. The verb to justify comes up twice. Paul is making the point that God the judge declares sinners to be righteous, to be just, to be justified. Verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law, the, the righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. And so Paul is not here in this verse talking about God's righteousness as in his justice, but he's talking about that same righteousness of Romans 117 that is a gift given by God for salvation, for all who believe. It's God's righteousness given to us. As a gift, Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not native to ourselves. It is not our own, but it's given to us by another so that verse 24, we may be justified. And that word justified is related to to the word righteousness. The um, righteousness of God is applied to us so that we are considered just, righteous by grace. Calvin in his institutes defined justification this way. He said, He who is justified is regarded not as a sinner, but as righteous, and as such stands acquitted at the judgment seat of God where all sinners are condemned. As an innocent man, when when, uh, charged before a righteous judge who decides that he is innocent, is said to be justified by the judge. So, a man is said to be justified by God when removed from the catalog of sinners. He has God as the witness and asserter of his righteousness. That's what justification is it is sinners being removed from the catalog of sinners with God as judge and witness and asserter of their righteousness. And in a moment, we'll talk about what that declaration of our being righteous is based upon. First, I want to just think about one implication of, of what we've considered thus far. If, if justification is the declaration that is made concerning sinners, then what room does that leave for boasting? So That's, that's the very question that Paul asks in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded We, as Reformed Christians, heirs of the Reformation and its recovery of of this doctrine of justification by faith alone, should be the most humble people of all because we understand that we contribute nothing to our righteous standing before God. But it is, as we confess in question 60, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, which therefore means there is no room for boasting whether explicitly boasts that we actually make with our lips or or implicitly as as we look at ourselves and and feel pretty good about ourselves. Uh, Thinking that what we have done, where we go to church, how we spend our Sunday, what our devotional time looks like, how well-behaved our children are, what school we go to, thinking that these things in any way contribute to our righteous standing before God. There is no room for boasting, Paul says. There's no room for looking down upon others, but this doctrine is meant to humble us. In fact, that's part of what we're reminded as we come to the table this afternoon, that it is not our worthiness that gives us a seat at the table, but his, given to us by grace. This doctrine is meant to humble us. And it's meant to make us glory, In Jesus Christ, consider next the question: What is our justification based upon? The short answer is Jesus. A a slightly longer answer, but still a a short answer, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what our justification is based upon. That's when we say that it's based upon the the life of Jesus. What we mean is his active obedience. The fact that Jesus lived the life that we never could. The fact that he perfectly kept all of those commands that are summarized in that psalm we sang just before this. Or the fact that that long list of of sins in Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, that none of that is true of him. That he didn't use his tongue and his hands and his feet and his heart to sin against God and sin against neighbor. As we sang, that he walked blamelessly and did what is right. That he perfectly kept all of God's commands. Justification is based, first of all, upon that record of Jesus' perfect obedience. Remember, boys and girls, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, was baptized. And John the Baptist said, really, you would have me baptize you? And Jesus says, yes, for it is necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness for us, to identify with us and fulfill all righteousness. Hebrews says that it was necessary that he be holy, harmless, and undefiled. So he first of all might be that perfect blameless sacrifice, but also so that his righteousness might be credited to us. Remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam failed to meet the requirements of of the covenant of works. He disobeyed where God had commanded him. Christ then, the second Adam, comes and obeys where the first Adam failed and earns that glory that Adam was meant to obtain. And the good news of the gospel is that that righteousness is imputed to us. It's it's credited to To our account. That's why over and over throughout this passage, Paul is saying the righteousness of God was revealed and given as a gift. Jesus' righteousness in the gospel. Is given to us. God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was for me. His obedience given to us. As part of what Martin Luther called the great exchange, the the glorious exchange where Jesus not only gives us his righteousness, but he takes our sin upon himself. That too was pictured in Jesus' baptism as he got in line with sinners and adulterers and murderers and idolaters and liars to get in line with them and receive a baptism of Repentance. We can picture Jesus getting in line with them, and as, as the sins of, of, of those sinners are washed into the Jordan, it's as if that filthy water is then picked up and poured out upon him, those sins symbolically placed upon the perfect Lamb of God There's a picture and preview of the cross. Where he who fulfills all righteousness identifies with sinners, taking their sin upon himself so that they might be given his righteousness. This is what Paul describes in verses 24 and 25. We are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption makes us, us think of, of the verb to, to redeem, it has the idea of, of a payment for someone else's freedom. And at the cross of Calvary, the form of currency that purchased our salvation was the blood of Jesus. Peter says he redeemed us not with with, um, gold or silver, but with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The form of currency that purchases our redemption, that purchases our freedom, is the blood of Christ. So Paul gets out when he says in verse 25, God put him forth as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means um, God's wrath being absorbed by another. That's what we sing of when we sing in Christ alone. We say, On that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That wrath was poured out. uh, You and I are the ones who deserve to receive it. But Christ is the one who propitiates, he absorbs the wrath of God. The righteous judgment of the judge was poured out on him, the righteous one, who had kept God's law perfectly so that you and I, the sinners, who had not kept God's law, might be reckoned as righteous in him. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. He bears our guilt we get his perfect record of obedience. That's the great exchange. That's what Luther so marveled at. That he who knew no sin would become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our filthy rags. Question 62, imperfect and stained with sin. He puts them on himself and he adorns us with his robes of righteousness. Romans 4.25, his resurrection is the proof that that exchange really did happen, that God really was satisfied, God the Father, with the, the redemption payment of the blood of his Son, that the propitiatory sacrifice was sufficient, and God really does view us as Righteous. You could say the crucifixion was the payment of his blood and the resurrection was the proof that that check cleared. And that not only are our sins forgiven, but the eternal righteousness of Christ the God-man is deposited into our account so that God views us as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was for us. This is the gospel of justification, not merely that God wipes our slate clean as if we're then brought back to neutral, but the actual positive obedience and righteousness of Jesus is freely given to us so that God views us as if we had loved God and neighbor as perfectly as Christ had. Which means there's nothing left for us to do, but Christ has done it all. It is finished. All we must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and God views us through the lens of his perfect righteousness. Which is the next thing that we want to consider. How is this gift received? I'll to verse 22 in our text in Romans chapter three where it says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25 says that the free gift of justification through redemption and propitiation is to be received by faith. Verse 26 to show God's righteousness as both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Over and over, Paul is making the point that it's received through the instrument of faith. Verse 28, we hold that one is justified, how? By faith, apart from works of the law. And verse 30, he says that both the circumcised and the uncircumcised will be justified, how? By faith. I think that's at least five times Paul emphasizes that the instrument through which the gift of justification is received Is faith. It couldn't be any clearer. Faith looks wholly to the other. It says with the hymn writer Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It says, as we'll sing in a little bit, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I have done nothing to deserve this. The only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin from which I need to be saved. Which again is what we're confessing as we come to Christ's table. We look to Christ and Christ alone without any merit of our own. The catechism says, out of sheer grace and accept this gift, question 60, with a believing heart, with the kind of faith that we confess in Lord's Day 7 when it asks, what is true faith? And it says that it's not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true everything that God has revealed to me in his word, but also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but also to me the forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. It says these gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. So that's what true faith is. It is a personal faith, or as they not only for others, but also for me. Not just given to the church generally, not just given to my parents, not uh, not given to all mankind, but there is a a personal element to the gospel and to the faith that takes hold of it. Also for me. But it's not only a personal faith, it's, it's also an understanding faith where you really do believe and understand the things that that we're talking about right now, the active and passive obedience of Christ, that he lived the perfect life you could not live and died the death you should have died so that you could stand before God acquitted, dressed in the perfect righteousness of God's Son. Do you understand that? Do do you believe that? Not not just... um, Exercising this sort of implicit faith, as the Roman Catholic Church uh, calls it, saying, I, "I don't really understand it, but I, I agree with what the church confesses. but do you believe and understand it yourself? A sure knowledge of all that God has revealed to us in His word, worked in you by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, so that again, we can take no credit. God himself is the one who even works this faith in us. So we may take no credit, but we look to Christ alone, to his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection, even his ascension, whereby he pours out the Holy Spirit to so work this in our hearts. It's all of grace, it's all of him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is how we receive God's gift of grace. It's also why it's it's so important that we understand that justification is is not just the forgiveness of sins, but also the the imputation of Christ's active obedience. It's the crediting of his righteousness to our account. Because what that reminds us is that there's nothing left to earn. John 19.30, it is finished. You don't have to add to what Christ has done for you. He doesn't just bring you up to neutral for you to do the rest. He doesn't just bring your bank account, your heavenly bank account, so to speak, up to neutral out of the negative so that now you're breaking even and it's up for you to do the rest. But he unloads the infinite riches of Christ's righteousness into your heavenly bank account so that God actually views you as if you had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was for you. And if that is true, then all you must do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Not that you please God by the worthiness of your faith for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are your righteousness before God, we we confess. In question 61, you can receive this righteousness and make it your own in no other way than by faith alone. This is not only the clear teaching of, of the catechism as a summary of the Reformation uh, doctrine of justification, but this is the clear teaching of Romans chapter 3. We receive this grace and, and justifying salvation in no other way than by grace alone. Paul is saying it's, it's not about the quality of, Of my faith. It's not about the precise amount of my faith. It's not about my faith plus obedience. It's not about my faith plus the sacraments. It's not about faith plus anything else, but simply faith in Christ who paid it all. Which does not then make us lax in our obedience, as if we overthrow the law by faith. But as Paul says in verse 31, faith upholds the law. This good news of justification by, by faith alone, this is our fourth point, does not mean indifference and wickedness. So, a question 64 asks, does this not then lead to indifference and indifference in terms of the way that we live and, and wickedness? It says, by no means. This justifying grace does not then give us license to go back to the way of sinning that verses 10 through 18 outline, our our feet being swift to shed blood, not knowing the way of peace, not fearing God. But the faith that alone saves never remains alone. The faith that alone saves does not remain alone it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. That, by the way, is why we read the preparatory form with that, that long list of sins. Because the heart that truly understands what God has, has done for you in Christ does not then say, I'll live however I want, but I will live for you. I've shared this story before, but there was a, an old story of a man who was passing through a, a town in the days of slave trade. As he was passing through, he saw up on the auction block a young woman who was being auctioned off, and he, and he heard these two men beside him talking about what they wanted to do once they purchased her. And so he scraped together all of the money that he had to buy her and spare her from that fate. It says that when she, was, when she was brought to him, angry and in tears, spitting at him, thinking that perhaps he was just like those other men, he, he looked her in the eyes and he said, you're free. And she said, what, what do you mean I'm, I'm free? Free to uh, do whatever I want to do, free to, to go wherever I want to go, free to be whoever I want to be? He said, yes, you are free free to go wherever you want to go, free to do whatever you want to do. She looked at him and said, "Then I will go with you. Because her heart had truly come to understand the magnitude of what he had done for her in grace, she desired to go and be with him, to serve him, to follow him, to obey him. That's perhaps not a a perfect analogy but it makes the point when we have understood what God has done for us in Christ by grace when we understand the the finality of his righteousness imputed to us it will not leave us living however we want. In fact that's why in the, the Outline of the book of Romans, he, he really is spending all of chapters 3 through 11 speaking of this gospel grace, and then as soon as he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, let us offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. When we truly understand all that God has done for us in Christ, it will not leave us living however we want. In fact, if it does, then that should cause you to, uh, to, to wonder whether you have really understood the gospel, whether you really have this faith, which it's impossible for it not to produce fruits of gratitude. We're not all of a sudden saying that, that our good works add to our justification, but true faith produces obedience. That's why the book of Romans begins and ends with Paul talking about the obedience of faith. And so we can look at our lives and ask, am I living like someone who has truly understood what Christ has done for me? Or am I living a life of thankless ingratitude? A life of unbelief? May that not be so? But may the good news of of God's free gift of justification, the legal declaration that we are righteous in his sight because of the active and passive obedience of Jesus, may that good news received in no other way than by faith alone make us more and more desire to live for him. Which again is the very point of the supper of which we're about to partake that through this gospel word which I now preach to you and this gospel word which we are about to receive tangibly in the bread and the cup, that God would stir us, that he would, would stir our hearts, Belgian Confession, Article 35, to more and more understand the height and depth and breadth and length of his love for us in Christ and by that move us to fervent love for him and fervent love for neighbor. That God would use the gospel of justification by faith alone proclaimed to us in word and sacrament to stir us up to faithful obedience born out of gratitude for what he's done in Christ so that we would live in a way that brings him honor. That this faith that alone saves would not remain alone but would produce the fruits of gratitude for all that God has done for us through Christ. May that indeed be the case as we rehearse this gospel each and every week that, that we would not uh, sleep through the sermon thinking that we have already graduated from hearing this good news, that we wouldn't just simply ignore that the law reading and confession of sin and assurance of pardon thinking we've already done that. But may God use these things each and every Lord's Day to ground us more and more in the gospel to remind us that Christianity is a religion of grace and faith, to to make it clear to us what Christian morality is, that it's works done out of gratitude, and to make us more and more enjoy this God who is so given of himself. As we partake of the bread and the cup in a moment, may God stir us to more and more believe this good gospel news and to live in light of it, but for the sake of the one who so gave himself for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Reformation, and its recovery of this crucial doctrine, this central doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Lord, we thank you for books like Romans that make it so clear, for confessional statements like Lord's Day 23, that ground us in the essential elements of this good news. that we pray that you would help us to see uh, the ways that we have not acted in faith, but have sought to add to the finished work of Christ. And that you would help us to see the ways that we have acted in pride, forgetting that this teaching leaves no room for boasting. The ways that we have forgotten that Christianity is a religion of grace and Christian morality is works done out of gratitude and not unto salvation. Forgive us for the ways that we have sometimes viewed you as a harsh judge and not a gracious father who so uh, loves us through the gift of your son so that through this gospel we might enter into enjoyment of a life with you. Help us, Lord, to grow in understanding these things even as we come to your table now, confessing my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We ask all this in Jesus' name.